Good morning and welcome to the Daily Ding. Happy Friday morning. We've got everything coming your way from the NBA offseason here on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Jared Weiss. I'm joined by Mike Borkinov and Andrew Schlecht pushing the buttons behind the scenes. And make sure that you don't miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. Subscribe now and save by going to theathletic.com slash daily dig, where you can receive an all-access subscription for just $1 a month because sports are back. The NBA is still going, even if games aren't happening, and you don't want to miss breaking stories on your favorite teams. So go to theathletic.com slash daily ding so you can receive an all access subscription for just $1 a month. So coming up on today's show, there's a reason we got Vork in the house. So we're going to get into the NBA agent survey where 20 agents talked anonymously about pretty much every single talking point that you could imagine in the NBA. And the first thing that I thought was interesting with this exercise was that it kind of sounded like all of us talking. These were kind of all the same takes that all of us have. And maybe there was a little bit of insight here or there from agents. But it was really amazing to see how even the most plugged in people around the NBA, they kind of have the same takes as us. But Fork, I I wanted to start with the risers and fallers, I guess, from the bubble, because there were some really interesting ones here. Let's start with the risers. Jimmy Butler and Jamal Murray were the top vote getters. What did you think of those results? You know, I, I thought it made some sense. Obviously, Jimmy Butler um, benefited from taking the heat to the finals, and he was you know, seen as the main driver of that team, um, even more so than Bam Adebayo. And Jamal Murray was just like a supernova for part of the playoffs in the bubble. So, I, you know, I, I, I thought it's interesting that those two guys were seen as the winners just because there are so many players that played well. Um, but I guess I, people saw, especially Jamal Murray, just taking the leap, right, from kind of secondary guy in Denver, uh, which is what he was behind Nikola Jokic, to now maybe a star-level type player, uh, which if that pans out and if, if he can hold it, that really does change the trajectory of the Nuggets, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting comments from part one of the story was someone saying about Jamal Murray that even during the season, I thought he was their third best option, but he clearly brought his game up another level. Without fans, you can really see who wants the ball, and he's a star now. And then another quote saying that that was a great max move by Denver. And remember, before the bubble, people were concerned about the fact that Denver gave him a max deal. He kind of had to step up and be that second best player. And it's pretty obvious that he pulled that off in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I was I was dubious of the deal he signed. I think it was five years, $180 million, the, the rookie extension that he signed. Um, or something along those lines with Denver, I think, last offseason. But I, I, they obviously saw his potential to grow, and this was coming a, a coming out party for him um, in Orlando. And, and we, we talked about this a ton on this program, but the guy that he was in the bubble, was a, it wasn't like he was just playing harder all of a sudden. There were some skills that he added to his game that weren't even there before. He became He was always a good athlete, but his composure in the air and his power and bloodlust in the air was at a different level. But his ability to dribble through traps and just kind of always find a way to keep the play going and then just going unconscious when he was pulling up for three. I mean, those were some things that were pretty new to his game. He was just he was probably the guy that just changed the way he played his game more than anybody over that quarantine offseason. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, I think he was definitely lacking in bloodlust, as you said, before he came to the bubble, but it, it just popped, I think. <laughs> we needed more murder. Uh, <laughs> it, another one that I thought was really interesting was Anthony Davis was uh, the third highest ranked player on this. And I really like that take because 
I was always a little dubious and skeptical of Anthony Davis's ability to really hit that high note and play at that absolute elite level because we've seen him be able to put up gaudy numbers when he just has the ball in his hands the entire time. But he had to, he had to find a way through the playoffs to be a complimentary guy, but also dominate every single time that he had the ball in his hands. And he was like insanely efficient and put up incredible numbers and pretty clearly staked his place as the best big man in the NBA. I, I, th- I actually think it was it's interesting uh, to pair that perception and that quote, I guess, uh, about him and how, it, you know, uh, he had one and a half votes there for um, a guy who you most impressed um, with the Seth Partnow story about tears um, and him putting Anthony Davis in tier two. 2A, I want to say, and he had that chart about uh, players in the NBA who both uh, create their own shot and their effective field goal percentage on those uh, self-created shots, which to me was kind of like eye-popping for how little he does it compared to his, you know, his peers in that start uh, tier status and how, I guess, inefficient he is, relatively speaking. So it, it made his performance, I think, um, in these playoffs even more... Um, I don't know, even more stand out even more just because of how often he was able to create for himself and not let alone like what he did as a defender in that Lakers defense, um, just really just, you know, suffocating the heat, especially in game five. All right. So then going to the followers, there were six games. How there were games? six games. Oh, my God. I've checked out. I forget everything now. <laughs> well, there were five competitive games, and then there was game six. We so. can leave that in, by the way. I don't mind people not knowing uh, people knowing that I don't know what time or day it is anymore either. Okay, we're going to leave that part in, too, also. So let's go to the fallers. There were the leaders with two votes, or two total votes, since I guess we're splitting votes here. Uh, Mike Budenholzer and Doc Rivers. And I think those are pretty obvious why. But especially considering that Doc walked away and now he's going to be the one trying to revive Philadelphia. Can you tell me more about what comments you heard about those guys and what you think is the future for Doc Rivers? I, you know, I thought the Budenholzer votes made sense, right? In real time, he was getting a lot of criticism for what he didn't do in terms of adjustments during that Bucks loss to the Heat. The Doc Rivers thing was kind of, I guess, if you want to say validating the Clippers' decision to some degree. Um, I think one of those quotes came even before he might have been fired, if I remember the timeline correctly. Huh. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you could have made an argument that what happened to the Clippers was not necessarily the coach's fault. Um but it, it seems like, you know, people think that Doc could have done a better job. Uh, and some of that was not just, you know, Paul George kind of, you know, breaking down or whatever you want to call it in the playoffs and Montrez Harrell playing completely, you know, different from what he was in the regular season. They, they see it as kind of a, a lack of um, coaching acumen from Doc Rivers. And it's going to be interesting, especially now as he takes a job in Philadelphia, which is, I think, kind of a difficult one on a, on a relative scale, um, what he does and what he learns from, from the bubble playoffs. So both of us, our normal beats, are covering the other teams in the Atlantic. I'm on the Celtics beat. You're on the Knicks beat. I'm curious, who do you think has the toughest coaching job next season in the Atlantic division? I, I mean, I kind of think it's still Philadelphia. Um, you know, they're like, you, I know it's easy to say the Knicks, but Tom Thibodeau has a relatively clean job to do, right? Inherits bad team. Um, gets them to play better, pre- create some you know functional uh, offenses and defenses and all that type of stuff. Like that's just an upward trajectory that just you know you you see every year. Uh, I guess you want to say Steve Nash, but like he seems to have a pretty good rapport and he's got a lot of talent that at least fits together. I don't know, man. Like the coach who's going to try to make Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid work, like that's rough. That's rough from every from every angle of that. 
I, I couldn't agree more. And we just the I get them wanting to hire Doc, but the peculiar thing about it is we just saw him trying to bring two great players together who should complement each other perfectly, and it still failed. So, I mean, the, the reason why it failed is kind of the opposite reason of why things don't work for the Sixers on offense. But it just of all the people to bring in at all the moments, it just doesn't really make sense from a from, I guess, from a events on the ground standpoint. But obviously, Doc Rivers, uh, if, if, if you're going to get someone who wants to command the locker room, he certainly is capable of doing it. Yeah, although I don't know that Philadelphia seemed like a command the locker room problem last year for Brett Brown, you know. It's a, they always blame the coach, right, instead of blaming the personnel and the people who put it together. That's very true. Well, you, can, <laughs> you can't really do anything about that if you're Doc, but uh, I, I am, I'm definitely excited to see how that plays out. I, I hope it plays out well because Philly is way too talented to just waste this. But um, speaking of wasting... One of the there was a lot of controversial stuff that came out of uh, part one of this regarding social justice stuff. And rather than focus on that part, you can go to Twitter and, and find all that stuff. I'm really interested in this one particular comment where one of the agents talked about they said that they don't want to throw the only gun under the bus. But for instance, with the jersey, with the jerseys, with the slogans on the back, that was great. But why aren't we selling those jerseys and donating the money to victims of police violence? They had a few other things like that. I was I was curious, what were some of the other things that you heard that you thought were either like aha moments for you as like, yeah, why didn't that happen? Or just at least maybe insightful as to how maybe there's a little bit more division over you know all the social justice stuff than uh, I guess the harmony that was presented towards the public. I think everyone is pretty laudatory of the NBA and Adam Silver uh, and the players union for getting the bubble done, especially since there were zero positive tests um, the entire time. I, I think where, where I saw the most feedback that wasn't like totally positive was in two areas. I thought one agent um, kind of mentioned, and I, I forget if the full quote is in there, just like how <laughs> difficult it was from a social aspect for players and that the league could have done a better job. Um, just in that way, you know, uh, Here's the quote. The the hard thing on the player side was once you got a month or two in, the players did feel like they were trapped in there. It's such a hard situation for the NBA uh, what to do. So I, I think maybe that was – I remember everyone talked about it initially when, like, started players putting that on their Instagram feed, right, like what their meals were the first night or two in the bubble, and that kind of went away. But it, it does seem like, you know, by month two, if you were in there still at that point, uh, it got to be pretty difficult. Um, and I think Paul George talked about it at some point. And I think the second point was what uh, the quote that you just mentioned was that, you know, I think the way that the social justice things were handled, I, I don't know if it was universally beloved only because um, it was something the players had talked about. If you remember, they had that big players union meeting on the phone uh, before everyone went down to the bubble. And I think Kyrie Irving was one of the main people talking during it. It was like, you know, how do you make the most of this moment? How do you make sure that uh, the attention is not lost on the issues that really matter? You know, not the basketball stuff, but everything else that the players are advocating for. And so when the agents made a good point, it was like, you know, you can put um, slogans on the back of jerseys on the court, but what are the tangible things that are going to be done? And he admitted that it was a hard thing to kind of second guess because it's a difficult thing. You know, that the league and the players are 
essentially raising publicity for these issues, right? They are not legislators. They are not law enforcement. They're not people in positions of power to do something about it. But how do they best use their platform? And I think it was fair to wonder if that was the best use of their platform. If they, if, you know, if the league could not have gone a step further um, to, you know, somehow fundraise money to, you know, help victims of police violence to uh, try to advocate further, you know, to lobby um, in Washington, whatever those things might have been. And this is me just kind of riffing off the top of the head, uh, uh, aside from what the agent said. But I, I think that was a fair place of criticism to, to think if the NBA could have gone further in what they did um, to promote the social justice uh, activism of the players while they were down there. No, I'm. You're, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, back, back. Uh, I guess the day after the Ky- that Kyrie news came out back in June, I wrote a pretty lengthy piece on the Athletic NBA proposing that they do all that stuff, coming up with tangible action plans, stuff like that. And most of the stuff that they ended up committing to before going down to the bubble was, you know, it was nice and symbolic, and there was a little bit of tangible promise to fund over a long period of time, but there wasn't really much in the immediate. Um, and then. Once the Jacob Blake uh, shooting happened and the walkout happened, that's when we actually start to see the real leverage being exercised. And so things definitely change for sure. And the big question will be what happens next now that everybody's back out of the bubble back home, which uh, let's just say we'll have more coverage on that coming up soon on The Athletic. But let's move on to what's happening now in the offseason. So. There's no cap space out there, and that means there's probably going to be trades because it's not like everyone's going to go, nah, let's just wait till next year. Let's just wait for Giannis next year when realistically there's only a couple teams that are in the Giannis race. Um, And so we know that Chris Paul is going to be on the move, most likely, uh, because he pretty much said goodbye to OKC publicly right after the season was over. And uh, He did, was, right? Like, we weren't, I wasn't the only one reading into that. It was, no, we all saw that. Of, it was kind of open. Yeah, it was a goodbye very, video. It was yeah, very, it was very weird. straightforward, yeah. And so all of the agents, or at least many of the agents you guys talked to, agreed that was definitely a goodbye video. Uh, he was the highest vote-getter for most likely high-profile player you expect to change teams. I like that you did high-profile player because it'd be really funny if, like, Dragon Bender was the highest vote-getter on there. <laughs> but so, CP3... Jeremy had, Grant got half a vote, so, I mean, do you count that? Oh, that's He's high-profile now. Honestly, I'd like to spend at least half an hour talking about that, but I'm going to focus on CP3 because I think the listeners want to hear that a little bit more. Now... You're covering a market that would be a great fit for CP3. And I'm curious, did did you hear uh, any, I assume, just rampant speculation of what would be a likely landing spot or a sensible landing spot for Chris Paul? I, You know, I don't think um, there was like any kind of consensus about where that might be. Obviously, you know, some agents mentioned the Knicks just because, you know, it happens to be that I also cover the Knicks, so that was an easy thing to talk about. I think Milwaukee, if I remember, Milwaukee got thrown around once or twice, maybe Philadelphia too, if I remember. Um, those are kind of the teams that seem to stand out as both like being able to uh, be in a position to like take on a player like Chris Paul at this point in his career, right? Um, and somewhere that he might ostensibly want to go to because it's not a team at the like complete opposite end of the com- uh, you know competition spectrum from where he's been for the majority of his career. Um, and, and I think those are the teams that have been bandied about to uh, this offseason to this point. Uh, it, it seems like a natural landing spot. I don't remember any other teams that came out of the blue um, in terms of like uh, agents mentioning where Chris Paul could go. But the Knicks sure seem like a, you know kind of like a smooth fit um, if you're just you know, talking about trades and what can happen with Chris Paul this offseason. 
Yeah. And then Bradley Beal, another one that's been floated out. I mean, we know that there's been a ticking clock on that. He says he wants to stay in Washington. I would expect he's going to want to try to at least see what happens at the start of the season with John Wall and see if things work out there. I'm not very optimistic. And so it seems like the, a move could be coming at some point in the next year. Uh, but that that one's going to be interesting. And especially because a lot of people seem to think that Brooklyn is the most likely landing spot. And I know that came up in uh, in part two of your uh, of, of your piece where you asked if Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Steve Nash, do they make Brooklyn the favorites for the Eastern Conference next season? And there were seven yeses and 12 no's. And some of the things I thought were really interesting in there is someone said, I think they all signed up for the same thing. So it's not a mystery. Um, And to say that Kyrie Irving's motivations are the same as any other human beings on the face of the earth, I think is a very, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty presumptuous thing to say. Um, and then there was a no saying, I think KD, if he's healthy, is the best offensive player and I buy Nash, but I give Kyrie two months before he's a malcontent. So no, we saw a lot of that kind of stuff. So I'm curious what you thought of all the feedback that you were getting. I, I did think it was interesting that the skepticism was not towards the player coming off an Achilles tear, but towards uh, Kyrie <laughs> in his Irving. 30s. Yeah, in his 30s. Uh, I think he's going to be 32, I want to say. And like it's towards Kyrie Irving, which I understand because I think Kyrie has... I mean, you covered him for a, his last year in Boston, right? And that did not go well, let's say. Um, and obviously, this his first season in Brooklyn was very, you know, odd. You know, he was hurt. I think he only played like a, a fourth of the season, if I remember correctly, a third of the season, something like that. And he said some stuff off the court, too, that got a lot of traction. I, I don't know what to make of it because I don't know Kyrie personally. I've never covered him. Um, I think some is might be a little overplayed. Um, I think just the fact that he's kind of a, um, you know, a loose spirit type of guy doesn't mean he's necessarily like a bad teammate or somehow he won't vibe with Kevin Durant. I think the fact that he does seem like a really good friend with Kevin Durant, let alone a good teammate, uh, should quell some of those fears. I, I, I think also... If you remember, uh, Jared, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think after that Players Union call, Kyrie Irving was kind of labeled as a disruptor type, right? When in a few months, like everything he had said was actually kind of coming to fruition, right? Um, And so I I think he sometimes gets stereotyped rather than looked in actuality. And so it's going to be interesting for sure to see how that plays out. I think there are actual basketball questions about the Nets that are relevant um, to wonder if they're a favorite. And the agents that we talked to felt that they're not in the East for a variety of reasons, including that, you know, teams like Miami, Milwaukee, Boston are still going to be there next year. And they're pretty formidable on their own. Well, there's so much to unpack there. I'll just say that I, I did feel Kyrie was pretty mistreated uh, when that story first came out about him speaking up at the players' call. It was a lot of misappropriating labels that are already somewhat misappropriating in the first place. Uh, and then I, I just I think they have the right pieces in place to make it work with Kyrie. Kevin Durant is the most it's 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 an extremely specific situation where KD is someone that he sees as an absolute equal and peer and is like his best friend. And he's talked a lot about how they're like best friends and they're equals. And so I think that KD is the one guy that Kyrie can play with 
and it can actually bring the best out of him and they can really push each other in a way that's productive. And then I think Steve Nash is actually a great fit for those guys. And there's a lot of stuff that Kyrie needs to learn about how to manage games and utilize his skill set better that Steve Nash was the master at. And I think Steve is going to help Kyrie finally, hopefully finally crack that nut of becoming, you know, an elite MVP caliber player. So there's there's just so much promise there. But I'm going to read off another quote from one of your responses. Are the are the Nets now the favorites of these guys? No, no, hell no. You're banking on the highest level of volatility. It's an impossibility. Uh, so that was that was that was gold. That was my favorite one. Oh, actually, they also said that Kyrie is entering a Stefan Marbury phase. You can see it. It's there. Basketball is not a priority for him. I yeah, I mean, I think don't that's, think I agree. I, I don't yeah. agree with that at all. I mean, I would say if we're talking about concerns for the Nets next year. Um, Kyrie's injury history is much more relevant to me than, you know, whatever his persona is, at least if I'm assessing the team. All right. Before we get to the LeBron portion of this, uh, of this podcast, uh, the most random care package items that were sent to the bubble or were asked to send to a client. I didn't understand what an ultra red light mat is. (laughs) What is that? Is that like a really, really red lightweight mat or is it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. No. <laughs> yeah, they're just some things that are past, you know, whatever, man. Like, I don't know. Uh, I, I also wanted to know more about the ultra deluxe toothbrush. I guess how deluxe it is. But, you know, um, look, as we know, NBA players, you know, they live on a totally different uh, financial landscape than we do. Well, I've I invested in a Sonicare Diamond Clean toothbrush. And I want to know, is there another level that I can hit with my oral care? Because I take that seriously. I want to keep these teeth nice and pearly for a long time. Yeah, I mean, listen, um, it's like the episode of 30 Rock, right? Like, you think you're rich, but there's another island for only rich people that Jack Donaghy doesn't go to. That's you and your, you know, your oral care. Yeah, well, I'm heading to Svenborgia next week, but I can't tell you where I'm going from there. But, um, oh, one other thing I loved was one uh, one of the items was a personalized blanket. And I'm, <laughs> I'm so curious, is it personalized in design or personalized in, like, color? Like, did they, I, was it shaped perfectly for this player's body? Maybe he just made it himself. What is a Bluetooth air freshener? Is that a real thing, by the way? I don't know. I should have fact-checked this. Because air fresheners don't need you to do anything. They just work automatically as is. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. No, it's real. I just Googled it. Okay, cool. Wow. Yeah, there's so much I don't know about the world. Actually, what was really interesting was uh, it said that someone said one of my good friends bought an electric scooter because from the front door of the building to their room was a 15 minute walk. I'm trying to think I've ever been to a resort where I had to walk 15 minutes to get to my room. That's that's I mean, we're, it is Disney World after all. Yeah. And I guess the you know, the the hotels were kind of tiered. So maybe the, you know, the ones in the worst hotel for the worst teams there had the longest walk. That makes sense. We should ask Joe Varden or Sam Amick. That's get true. her on the pod just to ask about the logistics of things. Yeah, we well we can get them on their electric scooter and they can come join us here. <laughs> so, all right. So the la- for the last couple minutes here, one of the questions was just LeBron James thoughts, and uh, there were a lot of thoughts. And the place where there were two places where I thought was really interesting was someone someone said transcendent talent, but over choreographed public image and off the court persona too obviously rehearsed and planned, not genuine, an obsession with creating a legacy instead of letting the legacy create itself. For one, great writing on that quote. I really I really hope that was <laughs> off the top of the dome. That was really well done. Um, and it was really interesting because 
I feel like LeBron is put under this absurd microscope that everybody acts like everything is choreographed and planned and stuff like that just because he's so well composed in public. But then he also does like the Taco Tuesday crap and all the like ridiculous like the remember the the Instagram posts where he's like smiling mm-hmm. through it all, you know, like the which to be fair in that moment, but that was the shut up and dribble moment. Like anything he said at that point, I give him full credence for it, but it was the most ridiculous thing ever. So I'm curious what you thought of those kind of comments and that one in particular, because it was just so well spoken. I, you know, I think what I really took from that portion was I think uh, there's a, a kind of an almost a unanimity about him as a player. Um, like there's no one saying, I think the worst thing anyone said about him as a player was that he's the second greatest player of all time. That's very true. <laughs> um, and so everyone has this kind of like this, this consensus of respect for him as a player, which I don't know how many people in sports have um, anymore at, at, or at any point in time, you know. Um, I think one agent said there's, you know, the kind of expectation of him when he came out of high school, uh, and he somehow surpassed it, which is kind of really true, right? Like, I think even if you said at that point that LeBron James would end up being the best player of his generation, maybe, uh, best player ever, um, and win all the rings and the things that he did, I think that would have been like, okay, we'll see. I don't, I don't really believe it's hard to forecast that kind of greatness. I, the other thing is just that maybe the way that people think of him inside the league differs a little bit, um, at least from the agents that we talked to, then I guess the, I don't know, how, how would you say that he's perceived publicly, just even in the basketball media is, you know, kind of this, uh, unanimity of love for him, right? Like the LeBron James is his own, um, you know, media, he has his own media ecosystem, right? Like sure. there, he, he, you know, he is both heliocentric on the court and off, um, with the way that he is. And I, I think maybe part of that, uh, the agents kind of disagreed from, I don't know, maybe it's either it's kind of, you know, jealousy for the way that clutch has come up. Uh, maybe it's just their own perception of it from a different perspective than we do in the media. Yeah, I mean, we all know in the public sphere, there's two opinions on LeBron. It's either that he's a goat or he's a bitch. And those are the only two that are pretty much allowed. Is that true? Uh, I don't know about the psycho one. Do you, you don't think that it's a, a a widespread opinion on him or you think that there's more? I don't. I mean, I think the only one who might have said anything close to that is Skip Bayless. Is anyone else saying that? Oh, I'm talking about the general, the public. No, I don't think many media members have done something as ridiculous as that. And I live in Boston and he's hated here. So it's, uh, you know, so maybe my uh, perception's a little bit different on that because like half of the people that I see show up in my Twitter mentions, like have that in their bio, um, which I think is insane, obviously. Um, but so there, I do think LeBron is fairly polarizing in the public sphere, but I think it's mostly just like whether he's beaten your team and therefore you're all upset about it or not. But uh, I mean, I get, I'll listen, if that's the way that Boston feels, who am I to doubt the many, many angry people in the greater <laughs> Boston area? I, I, when I come and check, you know, Twitter or everything that's written about him, like I said, aside from that one, uh, old angry guy on Fox sports, like I see almost just universal love for him, for him, especially now for what he's done on the court. Obviously, uh, his philanthropy in the last few years has been pretty prolific as well. Um, and I think he's benefited from being kind of this face of resistance in the political sense to some degree as well. Um, so to me, it was kind of interesting that, that the people who operate in the NBA at a much 
closer level to the ground than we do, uh, kind of deviate from what, you know, kind of like the informed view of the media is who also has some kind of like a little bit of inside peek into the league. Yeah, I, I do. I do think there were some, imp- I'd say, pretty salient points made here about how the media does kind of kiss up to him. Um, and, you know, he he's been nominated for uh, you know, best media interactor award. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the actual name of the award from the PBWA. I thought it was really surprising to see him on that award because while he's an amazing public speaker, his access is not widespread the way it is for most guys. He does his presser and then he's very, very selective. He usually uses his own media outlet. Like he's very, very peculiar and controlled on his messaging. And it, I, I definitely could see if you're somebody in the business, like an agent or something like that, you could see, see it as mostly BS or mostly planned or choreographed rather than authentic and genuine. I thought the most interesting thing was, and again, because they're all competitors, right? They're agents talking about another agent. Uh, I guess the oh. the uh, the the lack of appreciation, let's say, uh, for what Rich Paul and Clutch have done in the way that they have, you know, accumulated clients and done business, and obviously they feel like uh, I know LeBron James said I think it's been said that he has no ownership stake in in Clutch or he doesn't do much for it. Uh, the agency, I feel like it seems like uh, his peers would disagree with that assessment. Yeah. And and that really stood out. I think, you know, there's that quote there, but it was mentioned otherwise, too. And um, I, I don't think that's something that's been really looked at or scrutinized in the last few years. It may have been when Clutch first came off the ground. I, I don't remember. I wasn't covering the, the NBA at the time. Um, but it does seem like that's still a point of friction around the league, especially amongst agents who have to, um, you know, who have to worry about clutch coming and taking uh their clients and they have a great spokesman for the agency yeah there were a lot of there's a lot of references to aau how he's kind of him and rich have turned this into an aau type system it wasn't clear if that was from the same person or not but i thought that was a very interesting point but the they really went off on not just the fact that rich paul is a conduit for lebron and they did fairly point out that Michael Jordan did the same thing with David Falk back in the day and that Rob Palinka and Kobe Bryant had the same thing. So LeBron, LeBron being the marquee client of an agent, using that being a leverage point to build up the agency, that is not a new thing. And that's not really a problem, frankly. Um, it's, I think, more so about whether or not LeBron actually is running the agency, I think, is a little bit more of a concern. But something that they pointed out was um, somebody said that uh, that. Uh, Rich Paul, if he was a lawyer, would have been disbarred five times over at this point for all the bad business he's done. And they pointed to Nerlens Noel, who passed on a deal to hit, uh, I think, unrestricted free agency with OKC. And that backfired tremendously. And he lost like $100 million. Uh, Shabazz Muhammad, who I think did something pretty similar. Now, if and also, of course, there was the Marcus Morris situation uh, last year where he pulled out of a deal, which we pretty much you know, very rarely ever see. Um, but I I thought, if I remember correctly, Nerlens Noel being the one that wanted to turn down that deal and bet on himself, and it backfired pretty badly. Now, of course, that might have been the spin that Clutch was putting out so that it was, they were deflecting the blame. But I'm pretty sure that I remember these situations that are being pointed out here as situations where the players are making that call and the they went against the agent's advice. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the details. I looked into that. I think um, he Nerlens Noel might have had a different agent at that point when he turned down the seventy million dollars from the Mavericks. Okay, uh, just based on Google history. 
Um, but you know, it's look, it's all complicated, right? This is not straightforward in the sense that, um, you know, it's not just as if they're talking from this uh, ivory tower in a third person point of view about someone that they don't know personally, they don't have to compete with, right? So we should acknowledge that. And you know, I, I really do think that it's it's really just to me the interesting part was just the fact that like. I think the outside perception is different from the inside perception perception. And then how do we kind of um, square those two things together? And I, I guess that was the takeaway for me, at least from, from that segment of our survey. Yeah. And I mean, the tricky thing is that these guys know better and, and gals, but also um, they are biased. <laughs> They're very biased. And if I'm an agent, I don't think that's a bad thing either. You know, like sure. we're all biased in the way we view the world. I'm sure if we did a, a 20 anonymous media members about basketball writers, uh, that would get pretty, uh, you know, snippy too. That Which we might should do work it, it off, at some point. I swear to God, I'm, I'm down for it. I mean, I just, I just put it all in the DMs to everybody. <laughs> I don't, I don't hide it, but it was, but the, the thing I was going to say though, is that while it is biased, um, it's, it's really interesting in that if I'm an agent, I have like a pretty unique opportunity here to throw some dirt at like my biggest competitor here and totally get away with it. This is a great opportunity, opportunity to do some mudslinging here. It doesn't mean that it's, uh, that it's not true, but it's just like, it's a very unique opportunity to get to do some of that and try to steal some business or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the thing we were also mindful of is, you know, there are trade-offs, right? When you do grant them anonymity, you're hoping that they speak honestly to you. Um, and what they think and, and what honesty is, is not always, um, looking at the world in the positive view, right? Or looking at their competitors in the positive view. All right. Well, this is a must read. It, it really is. I mean, I always say that about everything Vorkanov writes, but this is an especially must read. Uh, really tremendous work by you and everybody at the Athletic MBA staff. You guys know the deal. Theathletic.com slash daily ding. One dollar a month for you could read this story. You could read everything that Vork writes over on our Nick's vertical on the national page. Tell me what, what else you got coming up that you think is going to be exciting for the listeners? Uh, I mean, first I want to say shout out to Ben Standig and to Michael Lee. Ben was the one who, uh, got this idea off the ground and, 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 uh, Mike and I helped him out. Mike now who just left the athletic, uh, last week, this week, like I said, I don't know what, what day of the week it is anymore. Um, but we all collaborated on it and I, I think it came out well. I don't know. I, th- I may have something coming on the new Knicks president uh, down the line. I've been working on a story for a while, and hopefully I can actually finish writing that. And Jared, you know how difficult writing is. It's it's the worst part of being a writer. Oh, I'm terrible at it. That's why I host <laughs> yeah, a podcast. Yeah, me too. Uh, listen, if you ever need a co-host, let me know. I'll, I'll be happy to stop writing immediately. <laughs> um, <laughs> other than that, I don't know. This I've been covering. Listen, you had a team in the bubble that was good, and they got to the Eastern Conference Finals. I've been in off-season mode since March. Um, I, I figure I'll write some more about it now that we actually have a day for the draft. It's funny. I think this is my first podcast I've done since the season ended and it feels like it was like five months ago, but it's really only been about what a week and a half or something like that. Yeah. Whereas for me, it feels like it's been, uh, eight years ago where it's only been like what, six months, seven months. Oh God, it's been seven months. Wow. Well, you know what? We got the draft coming up. We got free agency. And then according to the people in your survey, uh, it looks like the NBA is probably going to be coming back in January ish. 
the ML- MLK Day keeps getting thrown out there. Every two days, we say report. We see a headline saying report. The NBA is looking at MLK Day to start. It's like yeah, that's been reported like fifty times at this point. We know that that's probably what they're going to do, but we don't know yet. So whatever, we'll figure it out eventually. And until then, you'll have the daily ding on the Athletic Podcast Network, and we still have your favorite shows like the Athletic NBA Show, No Dunks, Tampering and House of Strauss, plus over a dozen team-specific shows available from some of your favorite athletic beat writers. So don't forget to follow on the app. You can get notifications there for new episodes, and you can utilize the podcast episode comments section where you can talk about how badly you want Fork back on the show. And if you're not a member of The Athletic, you're in luck because you can get all of our podcasts ad-free. You can get some fantastic writing from across all major sports, all for a super low price. You get a subscription today when you go to theathletic.com slash daily ding you never know when these promos end so get there soon uh shout out to michael lee a legend we are going to miss you at the athletic the washington post is getting a great one but we still got mike fork it off so we're, we're okay for now so thank oh, you stick down, everyone stick down. don't do that to michael lee okay well, we still got andrew slack so we're good there we go all right so thank you as always for waking up with us mike just say ding ding for the people ding ding